Hi, and welcome to The Beagle Has Landed. I am your host, Laura Hersher. Today's podcast is brought to you by Invitae. When the question is genetics, the answer is Invitae. Joining me today is Amy Sturm. Amy is a professor. What does that mean, a Geisinger professor? I've always wondered. A Geisinger professor, is, but it, you don't teach students. So, you know, we really actually have the same criteria for our levels of professor, associate professor, assistant professor, as your typical academic medical center. And the affairs committee, and, you know, we really kind of get ranked based on our different uh, accomplishments, whether it be national reputation, um, grant funding, publications, and then all different types of service, clinical service, education, um, you know, local service to Geisinger, uh, leadership roles. So it was interesting. Geisinger is an interesting place. So let me start. You are the director of the cardiovascular genomic counseling at Geisinger at the Genomic Medicine Institute. Is that, is that right? That's right. Yeah, which is very cool. I, I, um, I actually I think of Geisinger as the Yankees. Now, I'm a Mets fan, so it's a little bit <laughs> negative, but I don't really mean it to be. But I just mean like I know so many people that are sort of like they make a reputation somewhere else and they get kind of like known in the field and then like they're a free agent and Geisinger snaps them up, right? Like they've brought in a lot of people. Um, yeah, you know, that's a really good way to describe it, Laura, because I mean, I had been at Ohio State for probably a good 13, 14 years, you know, did a lot of work there in cardiovascular genetics and different types of research looking at novel genomic counseling service delivery models. Um, but, you know, I think many people get to a point in their career where they want to be challenged more, they want to have new opportunities, um, new opportunities for leadership and growth. And I also wanted to feel like I was more on the cutting edge, really, of genomics. And that's why I went to Geisinger. And I think a lot of people like what you described, end up there because of those same reasons. Yeah, well, because they're doing some giant genetics projects, genomics projects. Um, <laughs> yeah. And why, why I've always wanted, I mean, I love, I don't mean to sound negative because I'm not negative. It's my field. I'm thrilled that there is a big institution investing so heavily in genomics. But why do you think that's Geisinger's play? Why, you know, compared to all the other places in the United States, like what 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 do they what do they know that we don't know? <laughs> well, you know, Geisinger is very innovative in many areas in addition to genomics, um, whether it be things like our fresh food pharmacy for diabetes and you know weight loss management, um, primary care visits, bringing those back into the homes of individuals. So Geisinger is very innovative overall. Oh my God, um, I asked a full-on Kool-Aid drinking question. Okay, <laughs> go ahead. Um, well, it's funny too, because, you know, the more you're, you're there, you know, there's obviously challenges at Geisinger, just like there are everywhere else. Uh, you know, one example I would give is IP and just integration into the electronic health record and things that we're all struggling with, um, in genomics and really in medicine. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, the history I've heard really from the current leadership at Geisinger is it's all been a lot of the vision of our previous leadership and our previous CEOs 
who have really seen the value in genetics and genomics. And this goes back to a CEO named Glenn Steele. And then after him, we had David Feinberg, who unfortunately left us and went to Google. Um, but a lot of it has been the senior leadership just recognizing the value. Um, and luckily, they have seen that. And then we've been able to, you know, kind of as the genetics and genomics experts, uh, roll out programs and study whether they're really valuable or not. And Geisinger is a learning healthcare system. So we're always updating and changing what we're doing, too, because, you know, a lot of things that we're doing may not work uh, since we are on the cutting edge. And then we're studying that, evaluating it. And so oftentimes we're also very quick paced and it doesn't necessarily feel like you're at an academic institution. We we do change things and get involved in a lot of new things all the time. Here's what you know, if you're if you're if you're listening and you're like, what are you talking about with Geisinger? So there's 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 two pluses and minuses. Like the giant plus with Geisinger is that they are doing this very large um, project of offering exome sequencing. Am I getting this right? Exome sequencing to a large number yeah. of the people enrolled in the Geisinger Health System, so they have the ability to combine medical record information with genomic information for a large number of people um, from their health system. And and then there are various places where we're doing that around the world, right? But I guess what Geisinger has going on is they're also a health system. So that as opposed to studying it um, bioinformatics, you can actually say like, well, what if we take these people and we go and do these medical interventions with them? Um, which is an interesting laboratory of a health system to work in. I guess I would say the disadvantage for you guys is you're 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 not getting a lot of diversity in that particular population. But um, but still, right. it, it is it is right. an incredible resource. Yeah, it, it is, and so um, you're correct. I mean, we're rural Pennsylvania, you know, so we are very heavily European ancestry. We also uh, now have been enrolling individuals into MyCode, our big community health um, initiative biobank from a hospital system called Atlanticare. And so we hope that that increases our diversity um, to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. Um, but this started many years ago, uh, kind of in the mid 2000s, uh, when Regeneron, a big pharmaceutical company, basically made a partnership with Geisinger. And they provide all of the whole exome sequencing on the samples. And then they have access to the Geisinger electronic health records. And, you know, they are very interested, of course, in drug discovery um, research. Uh, But then we get all of that genetic and genomic data. And we currently have, I think, over 200,000 individuals enrolled. Um, We are waiting on about 40,000 sequences that are going to come back to Geisinger any day now, um, which will bring us up close to about 135,000-ish individuals who have undergone whole exome sequencing. Um, and so there's a ton of research going on in the background. Uh, but then a couple months, basically, after I joined Geisinger uh, two years ago, I also got asked, along with another genetic counselor, Adam Buchanan, to co-direct what we call our genomic screening and counseling program. And this is what was formerly kind of called return of results, but where we are looking through all of that exome data to find what we consider to be clinically actionable information to return to our patient participants. And so that's really been interesting because there's just, you know, so many different types of research you can do around that entire process, ranging from things like penetrance, 
um, of these genetic variants in an unselected population all the way to what do people do when they get this information? Do they actually act on it? Um, you know, how do the healthcare providers react to it? Do individuals uptake cascade testing? So we have tons of research are going on. Are there downstream costs? The big question, are there downstream costs in terms of people uh, increasing their medical care and so on? Right. And so that's um, another big question trying to figure out, is this cost effective? Um, you know, if people increase their screening, is it actually going to prevent disease? With some conditions, will there actually be unnecessary or overutilization of the healthcare system? So in, so in cardio, we're... let's bring it around to cardio, because that's where I promised yep. you this interview would actually be about. Um, before I decided to go off and tell you how much I liked Geisinger's uh, resources. Um, <laughs> but with this slight resentment that's encoded in me calling you the Yankees, just let me just put that out there. Um, I'll take it as a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> so, so bring it around to cardio. Yeah, I mean, I think when you're in the field of cardiogenetics, there's always this question of, where can we help and where do we come back to the dogma of preaching fruit and vegetables, right? Like like stuff that you could have told them before we started the whole process. Um, and, and I was actually something I was going to ask you about today, um, but I wanted to kind of I – was, I was thinking about the fact that um, you graduated from the genetic counseling program at the University of Michigan, right? In yep. 2001, said doing my research, yep. same year as me. So it's like essentially you graduate with the, the completion, so to speak, of the Human Genome Project and you go into cardiology. It's a real pioneering area, right? Um, yep. Uh, does it still feel like a real pioneering area, by the way? Um, I think cardiovascular genetics has come so far and has integrated um, a lot. And, you know, really the growth of the group of cardiovascular genetic counselors across the country, across the world, has grown exponentially over the past 15 years. So I'm not sure I would consider the entire specialty of cardiovascular genetics pioneering anymore, because it really is an, a very well-established area. Yeah. Um, that being said, I think we continue to merge into new areas, whether it be polygenic risk scores or direct contact with cascade testing, um, you know, things that many of us are very interested and passionate about where we feel like there's even more we could be doing. So mm -hmm. I think we're going different paths to keep pioneering in these areas. Yeah, so you're um, growing, but you're, but you you're know, not a startup anymore. You're not a startup anymore, cardiogenetics. So, but here's, here's what I... Here's what I think. Um, you know, I, I remember going to um, a lecture years ago. I was trying to remember how many years ago it was at NSGC where they had something on cardiogenetics. And I thought, oh, let me stop into this and see, does this mean we have this now? Does this mean like we have something to offer? And I went and I listened and I'm like, super interesting talk about the genetics of cardiovascular disease. And no, we have nothing. Uh, maybe it was 2005, six. I still came away saying we have nothing. So what was the point at which that shift happened where for people with serious monogenic risks in cardiovascular disease, you had something to offer? Yeah. I mean, we're definitely there. And I think we have been for multiple years now. 
And so if you think about the conditions on the American College of Medical Genetics and Genomics uh, recommendations for return when, you know, things are even identified incidentally, about half that list is cardiogenetics. And it is because there is some specific and actionable you can do. And so, you know, it's definitely much further beyond diet, exercise. Obviously, that's important for everyone. We all know. But for the hereditary arrhythmias, you know, there are specific things you need to avoid. And if you don't, for example, medications or fevers, um, you are at much higher risk to have that sudden cardiac arrest or death. And so, you know, and there are also for things like long QT syndrome, very effective, very specific therapies that if children know they have this condition and are, and are treated effectively with medication, they hopefully will never have that high risk for sudden cardiac arrest or death. And what percentage of kids, let's take long QT syndrome as an example. What percentage do you think, obviously this is a really hard thing to be sure of, of kids out there with long QT syndrome know they have long QT syndrome? Do we have any take on that? It's a great question. I mean, if if the incidence of long QT based on clinically identified, you know, individuals and families, it, it's been, there's been different ranges, but I'd say right around one in 2000, mm-hmm. um, based on what study you're looking at, you know, then if you look at the incidence of genetic variants um, in a unselected cohort, it's probably going to be higher because we still are probably learning a lot more about the penetrance of these variants. So it depends, you know, on what kind of question you're asking, like how many with a genetic variant know they have it versus, you know, some of these families that may even um, have penetrant disease yet still haven't been diagnosed and still haven't been identified to officially have long QT. And I think that's still a major issue. And um, that's why a lot of the advocacy and support organizations in this space of sudden cardiac arrest, sudden cardiac death, long QT syndrome, the other inherited arrhythmias, keep working so hard because you continually keep hearing these stories of young, quote unquote, healthy children and teenagers who do have a sudden cardiac arrest or death event, and they're not always resuscitated, obviously. So how often, how often when you identify one individual in a family, do you find mm-hmm. undiagnosed individuals who in a family who have the illness? Can, can you, ha- is that a really commonplace situation or? I mean, from clinical experience, I, I'd say it was very common because typically you might have someone present with syncope, which is passing out, mm-hmm. um, or some type of arrhythmia um, where luckily they were resuscitated or, you know, there might be a family history of sudden death or sudden cardiac arrest. And that would start the genetic testing process. But there were always people in the family who had no clue that they had this. And it wasn't until that first awful event sometimes that brought that family to light. And so, you know, if population screening can identify individuals with these risks, and if we think, you know, the benefits outweigh the risks of returning this information, including the costs like you brought up, um, I think we have a long way to go to identifying everyone with a cardiovascular genetic risk. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's right now, monogenic disease, there's like a, there's a big niche there. We know we need it. We know we need to find these people. We know we have things to offer them when we find them. We haven't talked about your own specialty is familial hypocholesterolemia, right? Yeah. That right? Yeah. So again, there. I've heard estimates of 90% of people in the population don't know they have this. Is that, is that 
Is that an old number? Is that a current number? I, 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 it's still pretty close to that number. Um, and I've worked extensively with the Familial Hyperclusterlemia Foundation um, really since they were born. And because even in my own clinical practice, it was very, you know, you hear how common FH is. And I probably had seen a handful of patients who were ever referred to me for that reason. So there's a vast underawareness in the medical field. And a lot of these families, even if they've kind of seen their family history of this very high cholesterol, premature heart attacks, things like that, they might not know that it's officially called FH and that it really needs to be treated in a definite specific way. And the fact that young children, we're talking as young as two years old, need to be screened to see do they have this or not, because we really need to initiate treatment in childhood for most people if we, you know, want to get to the goal of getting their risk for heart disease back to that of the general population. Mm -hmm. um, so there, FH is a huge area where we need to do way better um, in finding patients, educating them, educating their healthcare providers. And I mean, it, it blows my mind, honestly, because this is a completely preventable condition and it really hasn't had the attention on it that it needs and deserves compared to, you know, some of the other conditions we talk a lot about um, when it comes to public health genetics and genomics. But I think that, um, and I've, I've been invited to or have attended a lot of national workshops, even things hosted by the NIH uh, more recently, where they are putting more focus on FH. So that is really exciting. Yeah, that is really exciting, and I I think there's a there's a giant need there and a giant uh, opportunity, and I think there's pretty widespread agreement on it, right? So I I think we've gone from those early days where it was like the science is super interesting, but we don't we don't have something to a point where we're really equipped to help people with monogenic disease, and yeah. now you brought it up, sort of like uh, scooped me a little bit here, but. Um, the, uh, the, the polygenic risk scores, we start getting into talking about healthy individuals without a monogenic risk. Can we identify in that population who needs special attention? Um, and that's a little bit more of a complicated set of questions for what you just said, both how do we find them and how do we identify who we can really help and so on, right? Like that's a that's going to be a, something we really need to think hard about. Yes. Um, and, you know, it's exciting to see NIH and the National Heart and Lung Blood Institute putting uh, thought leaders together on that topic as well. I was really excited. I just got an invitation to co-chair with Seth Katharisen a workshop on polygenic risk scores at NHLBI. Oh, fantastic. Um, yeah, Amy, so that's that'll be great. I'm really excited about that. Yeah. Yeah, Fantastic. very exciting. Great to have and, a genetic counselor right, up there. Yeah, you know, I I honestly, I, I mean, obviously, I'm a huge uh, proponent of the value of genetic counselors and all of these discussions. And yeah, it's, it's really kind of an honor to be invited to the workshop and co-chair it with the likes of SEC, who I know you have interviewed and have interacted with. And so that's really exciting. Yeah, no, his work is amazing, and and uh, and he's a and he's a great he, like you. He's a great guest. <laughs> um, it was very, it was really fun to to talk polygenic risk scores with him, and I think w my takeaway from the conversation with him and and what I've read actually, I um, I read a paper by him this morning along with Kieran Musanuru, another friend of the program, mm -hmm. as we say, or another. Yeah guest who we've had on who's terrific and they wrote something that came out today 
uh, in Cell talking about complex risk in genetics and how you use them to stratify the population. And I thought was very useful in that paper was that they divided it into types of risks where, you know, if you took a group of people who are at high risk, are they someone where the drivers of the risk turn out to be one thing in particular? So if you have a big bucket and it's full of different people who have a high risk, but for different reasons, this is all for coronary artery disease. Mm -hmm. Um, And in some people, and this is sort of the monogenic model, if you think about it, more or less, you like, okay, what's the driver of the risk in this situation? And you separate them into their different spots, depending on what's driving their risk. And it's quite different. And that's, you know, you personalize therapy for them based on the differences. And they called that the fruit salad model. So in other words, you've got a big bucket and you pull out the apples and you pull out the oranges and you pull out the strawberries and so on. And the other one said is, which they think is more common, is that generalized risk, because we know that monogenic risk is a small percentage of all the people who have heart attacks, even early heart attacks. Mm-hmm. They, they called the smoothie model, where they said that their risk is a, a mix of all these different fruits, these different drivers. There's some lipids and there's some, yeah, there's, it, it's a mix of things. And for the smoothie people, you can't target their therapy in the same way because there isn't a single driver. Isn't this great? Smoothie therapy, smoothie image. That is a really great analogy. Yeah, it, it totally helps you um, understand those two different types of risk. I got to find that paper. I haven't seen it yet, so I'm glad I'll you mentioned send, it. I'll send it to you. Um, but it's, it's, yeah, it is really good. And it, it explains to the smoothie people what they said is that you can use, you know, but, but, that, but that anything that brings down any piece of the risk will work with these people. So for well for for one group of people you can maybe identify a silver bullet because you know exactly what's driving their disease and you can treat them right but the other people if it's additive kind of anything helps i guess is the point so anything you can do helps it's a, it's, it was a very interesting um approach to it but it highlights for me that it may be more difficult to treat the smoothie people even though it was an optimistic take on it so do you think that we'll be able to that, that that we'll be able to offer the same amount to these people who are identified who are the smoothie people? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I love what you were saying about the fruit salad because if that can even individualize therapy, I could envision the medical field really um, embracing that. You know, because of course, all, the question we always get is, well, how's this going to affect medical management? You know, that's what payers always ask us. If they're trying to figure out, will they pay for something or will they adopt something in their policies? And then, you know, the other major question is, will this prompt any healthy behavior changes, whether that healthy behavior change be diet, exercise, or even something like taking, you know, that individualized therapy. And, you know, there's a big problem with even medication adherence um, as an issue in a lot of conditions, uh, even with things like FH. So... I mean, to me, when I saw the data that, again, it was sex group and Amit Kara's group showed where they were able to identify individuals in the highest, you know, quintile of risk or even the highest one uh, percentile of risk who had the risk equivalency of a monogenic disease, that was 
a huge finding to me because if we can use polygenic risk scores to find even more people with really high risk for preventable diseases, and I'm not a statistical geneticist, uh, but I mean, those results said a lot to me. And it seems like that is the type of information that most patients would want to have and that most providers would want to have to best take care of their most high-risk patients. Well, I, th- I so think it's a little counterintuitive, think- right? Because I think people expect polygenic risk scores to stratify the population. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the truth is, from what I've seen, in most cases, they don't usefully stratify the population. They usefully identify the outliers, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the, yeah, I think that's a great point. Um, they, they seem to be very good at finding people at those extreme tails of high risk, where, which is where I think you could have a lot of the utility clinically. Yeah. You know, I have a question. This is a general, this is a general question, but I'm going to put, put it to you about cardiovascular. I, I think we're going to be, I think it's much, much more comfortable using these measures to identify people at high risk than we are using them to identify people, the other outliers, the people at very low risk. Right. Yep. Um, yep. There's a lot of tension there. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's going to be one of the real oh, yeah. tensions of moving this into clinical use. Is what do we do with people who are actually, when you look at them, at very low risk? Do you tell them that? Do you feel safe telling them that? You know. Right. Well, and it's really. I mean, I think. Do you say don't eat your fruits and vegetables? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And I mean, that's the thing. I think we've been dealing with this in genetics for a long time. You know, even if you tell somebody they have a BRCA, you know, genetic test that's negative or a panel test for whatever question, uh, condition and it's quote unquote negative, you know, what does that negative really mean? You evaluate a family history and it's not quote unquote high risk or moderate risk. It seems to be average, if not even lower risk with maybe some protective genetic factors traveling in a p- family. We really have not delivered that type of information in that way. Um, polygenic might even be able to quantify it more. And yeah, I think a lot of people have tension regarding reducing the amount of screening, even though we know screening has negative effects, you know, it leads toward unnecessary procedures, depending on what type of screen it is, like a mammogram leading to a breast biopsy. So I think there's really good rationale and reasoning to do it. Um, whether patients will accept that information and change or reduce their screening behaviors based on it. Um, will be interesting to see. I think some patients will, uh, but some well, patients. I went to a may- I went to a talk this year on uh, polygenic risk scores for breast cancer, where people getting up in the audience and saying, "I can't <laughs> see my my institution ever agreeing to tell anybody they're at less than population risk." Yeah, because they feel like there's too much was, liability I associated with it. it. Right, and and I could see institutions um, unless there's long term outcomes data showing these people really didn't develop disease and that they were actually, you know, younger, or I mean, we're actually not developing the condition, you know, um, I think there will be angst and tension around that. So yeah, because the the payers, the payers are going to love the idea of identifying people as at less risk. Yeah, that's going to be their happy place. So I think there will be a lot of tension around it. Um, Well, Interesting where it does seem like, I mean, you and I have talked about this, the genetic counseling field needs to hopefully be a leader in figuring out how to incorporate these risk scores or not. I I saw um, on some of the genetic counseling community discussions that people were talking about how for some of these polygenic risk scores, you can actually now opt out of getting that information for your patient or patients can kind of opt out of receiving it, Mm -hmm. which I think is interesting. 
Yeah. I mean, we saw that when they first introduced panel testing for uh, breast cancer. We saw that when ACMG introduced its 59. I remember somebody, uh, a lab director, telling me, oh, the ACMG 59 is so useful for me because it quant- exactly clarifies what I want to tell the lab to not give me. I'm like, those. I don't yeah. want those, you know? Yeah. People do. I mean, you can't blame them. They don't want to be given something they don't know how to use and And feel they might not use competently. Yeah. Uh, Speaking of things that that make people a little uncomfortable, um, one of the innovative things you've been working with there uh, is chatbots. It's just so funny because I had never word chatbot and it was probably my own like naivety and not really, you know, knowing that space. But when this project got handed to me, like literally two weeks after I joined Geisinger, and I'm learning about this, uh, you know, potential use case in genetics, and um, I get asked to talk to this company, I honestly am thinking to myself, oh boy, another vendor, you know, I'm, I really don't feel like talking to them. Okay, this will just be another sales pitch. But then, I mean, honestly, during my first conversation, it was like an aha moment because you do see the utility. And again, when I was in clinic at Ohio State for all of those years, I mean, you can believe that I got really sick of saying the same thing over and over again regarding certain, you know, pieces of content in those genetic counseling sessions. So, right. um, no, no, I know, have a I'm, lot of genetic counselors where they'll talk about certain things and there's sort of a knee jerk genetic counselor thing. It's like, we really need a counselor to do this. Like genetic counseling, like we're, we, we're I think because we're a young field and we've been advocating for ourselves and I'm, and I'm like, do you really want to do that counseling? And they're like, no, but the really repetitive stuff. I'm like, is that what you want to spend yeah. your time doing? They're like, no, absolutely not. I'm like, well, then maybe it's not such a bad thing if we have different jobs. Exactly. And we want to counsel. You know, I think one of the other majorly unsatisfying things to me in my clinical work has been working with patients maybe once or twice and then never having a long-term relationship with them, never knowing what came of their screening, never knowing what came of you know, their children or their family. And I think if we can like change that model to be actually much more involved with them, with certain patients, you know, it might not be everyone, but with certain patients and families where there could be a real need for more genetic counseling involvement, I think that will improve outcomes. And so we need to study that, of course. But I mean, I'm all about the chatbot. It's funny because I've been collaborating with um, one of the genetic counselors at Geisinger, Tara Schmidlin, who I work very closely with, wrote an article called Don't Fear the Bot. And that's what we say. And uh, so you know, what do you use? And, what do you use them for? So we're using them for multiple different things. We're we're building out lots of different use cases. Um, one of the use cases we've built is uh, what we call our follow up chatbot. So I mean exactly what I just said, where I was kind of unsatisfied with clinical practice and not knowing how my patients were doing. Well, we built a bot for that. So most genetic counselors probably don't have time to call all their patients at a one month or a six month time. Uh, point, but we wanted to do that and we wanted to touch base with our patients. So we built this follow-up chatbot to check in with them to see, hey, are you talking to your family about your risk? Hey, did you schedule that appointment with a provider like we recommended? If you haven't had genetic counseling yet, you know, do you want to schedule with us? And then people can schedule right in the app and people can ask questions right in the chatbot. And um, so that's one of the use cases. So we also built one for family communication. And if you read any research on family communication, probands want more assistance in helping them share information with their at-risk relatives. And in our focus group, people said, oh, you know, yeah, I could see utility for using a chatbot in this way. 
I'm not sure I would blast this chatbot straight out to a relative without kind of laying the groundwork first. But if I said, I have something I need to share with you, you know, I'm going to send some information on your cell phone that's authoritative, you know, factual information. It really does relieve the burden of that person having to all of a sudden become a metal, medical expert and, you know, having to contact every single one of their family members and get into a long in-depth conversation when they need to be focused on themselves and maybe their kids and their more immediate, you know, family who they're taking care of. Mm -hmm. So that's another use case that we're really excited about. And we're actually going to be studying that with some funding. Um, And then we also have built out several consent chats. So one for my code, our big research biobank. And then we also built one for our clinical whole exome sequencing program that we are rolling out in primary care. And, you know, We've had a lot of conversations about what are some of the additional use cases we want to build. We, um, you know, there's really a lot of potential areas where you could use. Um, We're thinking about even a contracting chatbot so that we can touch base with patients before they come in. What about, what about a getting teenage children up in the morning chatbot? (laughs) Yeah, that, that would definitely be, well, it's funny because after I learned about chatbots, started using with them, started building them. Um, I very quickly realized, okay, a chatbot totally helped me renew my driver's license. I had no idea that's who that was, you know, helping me on the website. But then in retrospect, I'm like, yes, that was definitely a chatbot. And they fooled me. Like, they had a name and, you know, everything and a little picture, but I guarantee it was a chatbot. We don't do that. We're actually very transparent and we say, hi, you know, this is a chatbot. But um, when yeah. they first started to have um, answering machines in the very early days of answering yeah. machines, um, my uh, my grandfather called my house once when when, when I, was, I was a kid and my father answered the phone and my dad for some reason thought it would be funny to pretend to be an answering machine, uh, which we didn't <laughs> have an answering machine, but he did and he did such a good job that he thought my grandfather would think it was funny, but instead my grandfather left a message and hung up and yeah. um, and then my dad realized that like if he now admitted to him that we didn't have an answering machine and he had just been fooled that he'd feel bad so we had to go out and buy an answering machine <laughs> Oh that is awesome. Yeah, it was. That's why we got one. Yeah, that so my grandfather would never mm-hmm. know that it was a fake chatbot that he had encountered. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yep. We have an ethics council at Geisinger and they've been very interested in the chatbot. And, you know, so we get input from them regularly and it's bioethics experts, but then also community members um, and patients who are giving us input into these tools. Um, But, you know, the other interesting thing was Geisinger is a very rural area. You know, it's basically in central um, to western to northeastern PA. And there's a ton of rural areas around there. And it, it's been kind of fun for me, honestly, because I had a lot of naysayers telling me this will never work. People aren't going to want to interact with this. You know, people don't use their cell phones and they're not really tech savvy. And then when we actually uh, performed clinical deployment on these bots that I told you we've now developed, we're now over 100 people that we've deployed these out to. People are interacting with them. Most people, if they open it, they get all the way to the end of the chat. And we're having um, about 60% uptake of people saying, yes, I'm open to you sending me these tools instead of a phone call. So I'm pretty pumped about that. I mean, honestly, with a tool like a chatbot, I think even if you get a 10% segment of your population to engage with it, that that's pretty good. Mm-hmm. So um, it's still early days. And, you know, we're going to keep looking at the data. But um, for some of these repetitive tasks where it doesn't have to be a genetic counselor who wants to work at the top of their scope, 
of practice doing this, I, I think there could definitely be utility. You know, I mean, I don't, I understand why people would have a negative reaction. And on the other hand, we all know the problems of scale that are coming with what we want to do in genomics. Um, and when you uh, look at, you know, ambitious new developments like uh, all of us wanting to return information for all, I mean, we are going to have to get innovative about um, how we scale up at least some parts of our delivery system. Even if, as you say, yeah. at the end of the day, at the heart of it, there's still a person-to-person -person interaction. Pieces of it and you know that are going to have to be more scalable. What we also, what our genomics team, and especially the patient input too during the focus groups, what we felt most comfortable with was that there had to be a way to access a genetic counselor from within the chatbot. And we didn't want to leave people hanging. And if they wanted to talk to a person, they could exit out of it right away and be like, nope, this isn't for me. I'd much rather talk to a person. So we built them that way. Um, but I mean, right, with all of us, returning results on over a million people, um, obviously, there's going to need to be scaling. And even when there was the call for applications for their genetic counseling resource, and I think we're going to be hearing who wins that any day, which I'm really excited to see um, which center or centers get selected. You know, they specifically included a clause about how some type of technology and or artificial intelligence had to be in the proposal because they saw the need for the scaling. Yeah, I don't know how else you do that. Um, <laughs> there's, yep. <laughs> there's, I, I know people are, I know people are pushing back on the notion that there's not enough genetic counselors, but really there's not enough genetic counselors if that's what you're talking about. So, well, we'll see. When do we find out who, who, who wins that competition? thought it was supposed to be April, so I'm hoping it's pretty soon. Yeah, I, I, it, it's going to be exciting to see who um, wins that award and, and what, they, what they develop. Yes, very exciting. Um, so I've managed to get all the way through this interview right to the end and haven't mentioned that um, Amy is also the current president of the NSGC. So just as we finish up the interview, Amy, why don't you uh, tell me if you're enjoying the start of your presidential year? Um, I love it. I mean, it's great to be working with NSGC. I've always been a very, um, I don't know, I, I always have kind of viewed myself as a spokesperson for the value of genetic counselors in many different spaces. And I, I love being able to integrate genetic counselors in more areas. Um, I'm hugely passionate about our field and what I think we continue to do. I love our new strategic plan. It's really exciting. I think it's taking us down different innovative pathways um, that I think we all recognize, you know, we need to do. And I think we're all uber excited about the new efforts on diversity and inclusion. So it's a huge honor for me to be in this role. And our current board is amazing. It's a great board culture. I just feel like I get to keep growing, you know, with my exposure to all the people that I get to work with via my NSBC um, role. And so it's great. I can't believe it's almost already three months down in 2019. It's been insane. And I hope I survive. But yeah, I love it. <laughs> well, great. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to hear that. And I'm yeah. really happy that you joined us today on the show. Was uh, was was really wonderful to, to talk to you and get your perspective and to hear about the uh, the growth and future of what's happening in, in cardiogenetics today. Um, yeah. so thanks to Amy and thanks to everybody else who's joined us here. Please go to BeagleLanded.com, follow me on Twitter, subscribe to the show, all that good stuff. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. 
Today's podcast is brought to you by Invitae. When the question is genetics, the answer is Invitae.